Good morning, everyone. What's a, what a blessing it is for us to be able to gather and worship together. Amen? Amen. Um, the Lord, he always uses this time each and every week to fill and redirect my heart towards him. And I hope that he's doing the same thing for you uh, this morning. Uh, well, my name is David Duran. I'm the church planting resident here at DOXA. And in just a few more months, the Duran family... I will be moving to Massachusetts to begin the work of planting a church in the Plymouth area. And I say, um, when I say begin the work, um, we'll finally be on the ground, you know, sort of evangelizing and discipling and and doing the work of planting the church. Um, But many of us, in fact, I hope most of us, maybe even all of us, are already engaged in the work as we've been praying for that area of the country. Uh, There's such a need for the gospel in New England. It is very much uh, rocky and barren soil, but we trust that the Lord can and will bring fruit. He can bring life to the hardest hearts, and we're praying that he will do that. And in the meantime, we are going to cover that place in prayer. And we're going to trust that the gospel seeds that uh, we've already sown and the many more that we will sow are going to find good soil. Uh, Church, just continue to pray, please. Continue to pray that God would do something amazing for his glory. Something amazing for his glory. Don't you want to see that? Don't you want to be a part of that? And I'm I'm so excited for what the Lord is doing uh, right here in Myrtle Beach because he is doing something. One of my favorite times of community group uh, each week is when we just talk about what we're seeing the Lord doing in our lives and in our community. The Lord is doing things, people. He's doing things. And um, I'm excited for, for the more that he's going to do. And I look forward, so much so, to telling you about everything that the Lord is doing in Massachusetts. Because he's going to do good things. Amen? All right, well, let's pray together, and then we're going to look at God's word. So would you pray with me? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The heavens declare your glory, Lord. The sky proclaims the work of your hands. In you, Lord Jesus, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible. Everything was created through you and for you. Jesus, you are the one we worship. You are the one who has captivated the love of our hearts. But we confess that our love for you, it wanders away from you. We direct it towards things that don't satisfy, towards things that are not good for us, even towards things that we hate. We ask, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, fill us today with a fresh love for you. Overwhelm us with holy desires for faithfulness, for obedience to you. Give us an overpowering desire to be with you and your people. Give us a love and compassion for the lost that can only come from you. Lord, please do not leave us as we are, but sanctify us, 
Transform us that we might reflect your glory and your love to the world. We ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning. I have the the image of baby birds sitting in the nest with their mouths open, just waiting to receive food from their mother. And um, that is our posture towards you, Father. We're here with hearts open, waiting for you to feed and nourish us. So we pray, we ask that you would do that. Build up this body of believers. Make us strong in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in just a couple weeks, many of us, myself included, will find ourselves filled with better resolve to take care of our health. If Thanksgiving to Christmas is the time for feasting, will New Year's until fill in the blank, I guess, is the time for fitness. For some of us, that might be a week, a month. The overachievers might make it through the entire year. And while exercise is certainly important when it comes to our health, it's really only half the battle. Equally important is our diet. Anyone who cares about their fitness and their health knows that they have to pay attention to what they eat. If you're working out five or six days a week, but pumping yourself full of donuts and Doritos, you're not going to get the results that you desire. Trust me, you can testify to that. There's a phrase that goes along with this I'm sure you're probably familiar with. It goes, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. Have you heard that before? It's not meaning that you're literally going to turn into a donut if all you eat are donuts, but it's an understanding that what we consume has a significant effect on our bodies. I actually saw a study last week that claimed to find a correlation between eating spicy food and self-reported aggression. Apparently, people who eat spicy food are just naturally, maybe not naturally, it's because they're eating it, but they're more aggressive, according to this study. And whether you agree with that or not, because I have some questions about that study, (laughs) we would all acknowledge there's a significant relationship between the health of our bodies and the food that we consume. In some ways, we are what we eat. Well, when it comes to the Christian life, It's not so much about what we eat, although I do hope that you will take your health seriously. But it's not primarily about what we eat. No, instead, it's about what we love. It's about what we love. What the uh, the phrase, you are what you eat, is to health and fitness, the phrase, you are what you love, is to the Christian life. You see, it's essential for us to know what we believe as Christians, but I think equally foundational for our growth and maturity is for us to be aware of what we love. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That, that living water of the Holy Spirit that Jesus talked about in John chapter 3 that we looked at a couple weeks ago, that living water that becomes a spring of water, it flows from a heart that is aware of the danger of misguided love. 
Well, today we're taking a pause from our series in the Gospel of John and instead looking at one of John's letters, 1 John. And if you could sum up 1 John in a sentence, I think it would be this. Here, John is calling Christians back to some of the basics of the Christian life. He's calling us back to some of the basics of the Christian life. And our passage today speaks directly toward the objects of our love. So while we're leaving John's gospel for just a week, we are certainly not leaving the teaching that comes from John. And I actually think you're going to notice some strong similarities between this passage today and what we've already seen in the first few chapters of John. So here's how I want us to proceed this morning. First, let's just take a few minutes and let's walk through this passage. Let's chew on it. Let's think through it. Let's hide what we find deep in our hearts. And then I have just three quick points of application. But I trust that as we're doing this, as we're going through the passage, we're thinking through it, the Lord is going to bring plenty of points of application to your own heart. That's my prayer. So let's read those three verses again. John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now we know that a distinguishing mark that should separate Christians from those who don't know God is our love. Christians throughout the New Testament are called to be a people of love. Jesus says to his disciples at the end of John, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And it seems to me that we often think of love in a positive sense. And what I mean by that is I think we, we do a good job of thinking about where our love needs to be directed, needs to be here, needs to be there. But I think we have room to grow when it comes to understanding where we need to be guarded with our loves. And here, John, in very plain language, he's telling us not to love the world. But what, what does he mean by that? We can really get off track if we misunderstand this statement. And to be honest, I think a fair amount of Christians have misunderstood what John is saying. John is in no way is saying not to love the people of the world, right? Jesus points out in John 13, 34, even John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That word world is used in John 3.16 and in 1 John 2.15. Same word for world, but it has very different connotations. When John tells us not to love the world, here's what he's saying. He's instructing us not to love the systems of the world. The rhythms of the world that are in competition with God and his design. These active systems, they are constantly competing for our love and our affection. They are competing for our worship. And the truth is, 
We cannot escape them this side of heaven. We cannot hide from the world while existing in the world, no matter how hard we might try. And I would actually submit to you that an attempt to hide from the world and its systems is actually a non-biblical approach. God has given his people commands to go into the world. He told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to cultivate the earth. Even after the fall of humanity in Genesis 3, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David are given a mandate from God to replenish and to subdue the earth. It's not a a posture of hiding, it's a posture of going. Even when the Israelites are in exile, in a hostile Babylonian culture, Jeremiah 29, 5-9. Some of you will be familiar with that passage. But the, the people are instructed to, to build homes, to plant gardens, to have children, to work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where they are exiles. Christians go into the world to build things and to influence. We don't have to hide. We don't have to be afraid. We seek the flourishing of people and of neighborhoods and of cities that are all around us. We just know that what it means to truly flourish as a human being and as a culture is very different from the image and the definition that the world gives. Notice here that John doesn't say that the world is evil. The world in many ways is a beautiful gift from God. But if it becomes the object of our love, then our soul is in a dangerous place. John goes on to write, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Strong words, right? Strong words from the apostle here. But here's here's what he's doing for us. In just one sentence, John is giving uh, a litmus test to help us see, to help us determine, is the love of the Father dwelling in me. It's the love of the Father dwelling in me. Do you guys remember using those litmus test uh, things in, in chemistry class in high school? Does anybody remember those? See a few nods. Uh, I know we have some scientists in the room, so correct me after if I get this uh, illustration wrong here. But how I remember it is you, you dip the piece of paper in like a, a liquid or substance, and if it turned red, it meant that it was more acidic. And if it was blue, it was more alkaline. I think that's right. I'm in the neighborhood somewhat. Um, Well, the litmus test that John gives us here to help us determine, is the love of the Father dwelling in me? The test he gives us, it requires daily reflection and daily prayer. But the question that we, we have to ask ourselves, right, is do I love the world? Do I love the world? We should even invite other Christian brothers and sisters to help us in answering that question. Like when we have a really big decision to make, invite them into our lives to say, hey, am I, am I loving the world in this decision that I'm making? Or is this something that's truly God-honoring that is flowing from the love of God that's dwelling within me? It's not something we have to do on our own in answering this question. But Christian, I do have, I do have to ask you, Do I have to ask you, are you in love with the world? Are you in love with the world? Have you been lulled to sleep by the world and what it offers you? 
I was talking to a friend about this passage actually last night, and he was telling me that just a couple of days ago, his car was uh, broken into, and all the stuff that was in there uh, was stolen, and it was a significant amount of stuff, and it cost a significant amount of money. And he said to me, it's just cool how the Lord does this as you're thinking about a passage and people bring things even to my mind, and maybe it'll bless you. But he said, um, this was a really good test for me when I lost that stuff. It was a test for me to see where, where is my love towards? Is it towards these things that I just lost? Or is it towards the things of God? Now, if the question, uh, do I love the world, seems a little vague to you, because it is somewhat of a vague question. If that seems a little vague to you, in verse 16, John gets specific. So we can confidently know exactly what he's talking about when he instructs instructs us not to love the world. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Again, remember, John is not saying that the world as God originally created it is evil. When God created the world, he called it very good. It is sin. It's the rebellion against God that has corrupted this world. First by our first parents, Adam and Eve, and now by each one of us. We are sinners by nature and by choice. Well, here John is giving us examples of things we must be aware of. Things that will fight for our love during our time as exiles in this world. And I use that word exiles very intentionally. Remember, brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus Christ, our citizenship, our belonging is in a different kingdom. Our identity is as a new people. John 15, 19, Jesus says to his disciples, if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Oh, how important, Christian. Oh, how important it is for us to remember who we are. Joy sapping love. Joy sapping love finds fertile soil in the hearts of those who forget that we are now members of the household of God. That's our identity. That's where we belong. Now, when it comes to our desires, God has given us good and natural desires. But it's so easy for our our loves to become corrupted and misguided. Worldliness creeps in and corrupts the holy desires that God has given us when he saves us, when he changes our nature. And we have to be aware of where our love is being misdirected. Sometimes we're, we're blind to the, the sinful desires that may be showing themselves in our lives. And we need the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. We need our Christian brothers and sisters to point out to us where we might be misguided in our love. Godly correction from a friend, when it's done with love and humility, it is such a gift. It's a gift. I think we can do a better job of receiving that. But our humility... Humility is essential on the part of the one giving the correction and on the part of the one receiving it. But a church that is growing together in godliness, which is 
What I trust is the desire of all of us that we would grow together in godliness. It must have Christians who are watching over one another and who aren't afraid to point out our blind spots. Well, in verse 16, John exposes three connected things that we have to be conscious of in terms of our desires or our loves or our passions. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life or or pride in possessions. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he lists some of the desires of the flesh for us. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but Galatians 5, 19 to 21, if you want to get even more specific, or what are the works of the flesh? <laughs> Scripture shows us. Our flesh, our human nature, naturally wars against the things of God. But again, when God saves us, some of you need to hear this. When God saves us, he frees us from being slaves to our sinful desires. We're not slaves to those things anymore. We're not slaves to those sinful tendencies that we might have. He frees us from being bound to the deeds of the flesh. When the love of God is what dwells in us, we're no longer bound by other misguided loves. Now, sure, we struggle against the desires and the lusts of the flesh. We don't want to minimize that. But God enables us by the power of his spirit Spirit, to overcome, overcome, because Jesus has overcome, his spirit dwells within us, we're able to overcome the sinful desires of the flesh. Next, John mentions the desires or lusts of the eyes. Now, sexual sin certainly falls in this category as well, but it's also things like coveting and jealousy. Those are the results of unhealthy desires of the eyes. Have you ever been on social media and you're just scrolling through endlessly, mindlessly, maybe even for hours and hours, and in an unhealthy way, you start to wish that you were on that amazing vacation that your friend is posting about. Maybe you wish that your family looked perfect like the the family that you see in the picture, or you wish that you had that body type, or you had that car, or you had that experience, whatever it is. You know, unhealthy desires of the eyes, they only end up bringing pain. They bring pain. The lust of the eyes is never satisfied, always wanting more. It's always wanting something new all the time. And it it occurs with sexual sin, but also when we covet things, when we covet possessions. Now, closely connected with the desires of the eyes is the pride of life or pride in possessions. Friends, pride of life is that sinful temptation for power and excess that every single one of us struggles with. It's the desire that says, I want to have it all. I want to be recognized for my success. And our pride, if you think about it, it it, it really doesn't make any sense. It's, It's a stench, I think, in the nostrils of God, if I'm honest with you. There's absolutely nothing in this life in which we have a right to be prideful of. We don't have the power to keep our hearts beating for one more second. It's God who enables us. It's God who allows us to continue breathing every day. Without him giving us life, there's no way we would be able to accomplish anything. Pride, if you really think about it, it doesn't make sense. Now, we, we show that the pride of, 
pride of life has started to take root in our hearts when we desire to feel more important than others around us, when we desire those positions of power so that our ego can be puffed up. Not that those things are evil in themselves, right? They're not. But when pride becomes attached to it, that's when the problem starts. Pride is often confused and described by using terms like driven or self-made or self-motivated. That's good to be driven. It's good to work hard and to be motivated. But friends, let's pray that the pride that often goes along with those things doesn't seep into our hearts. John concludes verse 16 by reminding us that each of these things he just described, the desires, lusts of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, they are not from the Father. These things are not from God, but are from the world. And if we find ourselves consumed by these things, we have to realize that our love, it's misguided. It's off. We're feeding our heart the wrong things. We become what we love. And when we love those other things, it's going to eat us alive. Finally, in verse 17, John, again, very plain language. John, there's not a whole lot of interpretation you have to do here. John makes it very Plain. He's very direct. Verse 17. John says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see why love for the world is so pointless? See why it just doesn't make sense? The world and its evil and its, its ungodly systems and wicked constructs are, are passing away. And John uses present tense language here to show us this isn't just something that's going to happen one day in the future. It's it's not just something that's going to happen one day. It's happening right now. And each and every day that passes, we move one day closer to what Almighty God says in Revelation 21.5. Behold, I am making all things new. We're moving closer to that each and every day. Christian, be reminded That all the pain and struggle and suffering and sin that we have to deal with in this world, one day it's going to be finished. The world and its desires are passing away. So one who does the will of God, who, who dwells in his love that will abide forever. It's the one who clings to Christ, knowing that when your hands start to slip, he is holding even tighter onto you. If you're here today and the desires of this world just have you beaten down, let verse 17 of 1 John chapter 2 flood into your heart. Let it even cause you to rejoice a little bit. This world is passing away. Almost just want us to take a moment of silence and think about that. Reflect on that. We get so wrapped up in our jobs or school or families and raising children, our our hobbies, even in the life of the church, we forget this is coming to an end. We need a perspective that sees the entire picture of what God is doing from beginning to end. Things as they are now, it's not as they will be. And that should bring hope, right? Should bring hope to each of us. Christians should actually be, I think, the most hopeful and the most realistic people on earth. Realistic in the sense that we understand the seriousness of sin and what it does to the world, 
but hopeful in that we know, we've seen, we've tasted the grace of God and its power to change us. Hopeful in that we know how Jesus changes individuals. He changes families. He changes communities. And he changes our eternity. And all who will turn from their sin and trust in Jesus as their Savior will dwell forever with God in heaven. That gift of eternal life, a gift of dwelling with God forever, the the gift of new life both now and uh, forever, that's available to anyone and everyone who will turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. And I pray, I pray this every week, I pray that someone in this room would do that for the first time today. For the first time you say, I, I realize this world and its systems and the structure are passing away. My sin has beaten me down, even if I don't have that word to describe it, and I need a Savior. I need Jesus, and we want to help you. We want to walk with you through that. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to overcome the world, if we're going to have our misguided loves redirected, we first have to receive and embrace the love of Jesus. Some of us, have you ever hugged someone, like, you know, given someone a hug, and you can tell, like, they just don't, they don't want it. They're just kind of like, maybe they're like this, or like, they're really stiff or whatever. I think that's, if we're honest, that's our posture sometimes towards the love of Jesus. Even those of us who are Christians, like, I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to receive that today. I remember uh, an old Puritan pastor, he said, love is like an echo. It returns what it's received. And we need, we need Jesus to fundamentally change what we love. Jesus has to do that. The Holy Spirit does that. And we're mistaken if we think that we can just withdraw our love from the world. It doesn't work like that. We need to taste and see that what Jesus offers is so much better. We need an an encounter. We need an experience with the risen Savior. And that is first and foremost. And many of you have heard that and praise God for that, right? You've received that. I trust that. Looking out, I know most of you, I know you have received that. But here's the question. How do we stoke the fire so that our love for Christ doesn't go cold? What rhythms and habits do we need to implement in order to foster a love for Jesus? We've got just three quick things, and there's a lot more, but here's three quick things. First, think about practicing the spiritual disciplines. Practice the spiritual disciplines. When I use that term, I'm talking about things like prayer, fasting, Bible reading, service, evangelism, discipleship gathering together for worship on Sunday. If you have questions about how to pray, how to read the Bible, how to fast, what all of that means, talk to me, talk to Dale, talk to one of our elders, or even just a member of the church. We'd love to help you in that. All of these things, they help us to draw closer to Jesus. These things fuel our affections for him. They reorient our love for him. The church has been doing those things that I just mentioned for 2,000 years. These are time-tested ways that Christians 
through the centuries draw near to Jesus. These aren't just things that we've made up in the last 20 years because we think they sound good and they might help. No, these are time-tested ways the church draws near to Jesus. Now, I, I know that we all go through dry spells sometimes in our spiritual lives, right? We all do that. But that time with God that we spend, it reminds us of who he is. When we pray, when we pour out our hearts to the Lord, he hears us and he listens to us. When we spend time reading and studying the Bible, we come to know God in a more personal and intimate way. Our thoughts, our beliefs about God can be accurately shaped as we study scripture. Brothers and sisters, the more we truly know God, the more we desire him and not the world. We should pray that God would make us like David in Psalm 42, when he says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You know, Tyson already mentioned it earlier, but what an encouragement it is to come together on Sunday and sing out in worship. That's actually one of my favorite parts of Sunday morning. It encourages me so much to hear your voices sing. Even if our voices aren't that good, some of us like me, it's not great. You probably don't want to hear me sing, but it's encouraging, right? It's encouraging when we hear one another sing. It reminds us that we're all in this thing together. And I've found that some of the best medicine for my soul is singing out to the Lord, singing out to him. Next, we grow our love for Jesus when we take God-honoring risks. We grow our love for Jesus when we take God-honoring risks. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 29, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, I recognize that as human beings, we all struggle with fear. We're naturally afraid of things that might threaten our, our physical or our emotional or our financial future. But we can't, we can't believe the lie that anything that sounds a little bit uh, risky, any kind of risk is wrong and therefore not from God. There are some big risks that we might need to take for God and his glory. God might call some of you he might do this. He might call some of you to sell all you have and move to a remote part of the world to, to share the gospel, to show the love of Jesus. We're actually praying, just so you know, we're praying that God would raise up missionaries in this church, that he would do that. We should genuinely ask, God, are you, are you having me to take these steps? But there are other smaller things, right? Smaller steps we need to take. I'm thinking of things like, Approaching that coworker or neighbor who always seems upset, who always seems to have a bad attitude, and just talking with them. Maybe we get an opportunity to pray with them. Perhaps the Lord opens a door for us to share the gospel. Those are little risks that we can take, right? What about stepping up to lead a, a community group or some other kind of ministry here? Maybe you need to take a risk and, and talk to Kara and, and go out and help on that home that needs uh, some work done today. That's a risk, and, and it's one that you might need to take. When we take, here's the thing, when we take risks for the kingdom of God, we show where our hope and our trust truly lies. 
And God, he uses this. He he uses this to shape and direct our love towards him. Finally, our love for Christ is developed when we put our resources towards the things of his kingdom. Um, And I, I use the term resources there. I'm thinking primarily about time and money. Our time and money say so much about what we actually value. I guarantee that if we were to take a look at our our time and money budgets, we would get a good idea of what it is that has our love. Jesus said, Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Church, what, what we treasure will have our love. What we treasure will have our love. Now, I would bet that most people here Uh, In your heart, Jesus is the treasure of your life. Jesus is the treasure of your life. You've tasted and seen the Lord is good. But man, our hearts, they grow cold, don't they? They grow cold. Our love wanders to the things that the world offers us. And before we know it, we're being consumed. And we don't even recognize ourselves anymore. But my invitation to you, first and foremost, Christian, is to just receive. Receive the grace, receive the mercy, receive the love of your Savior. Before you do any of those things that I just mentioned, receive. You can't earn your way into his love. You don't have to try to keep yourself in his love. But we can do things by the power of the Holy Spirit to breathe on the fire that he's placed within us. Amen? Well, each and every week, when we take communion together, we are practicing, don't miss this, we're practicing one of the most fundamental things we can do to reframe and refocus our love. When we take the bread and the juice, the body and the blood of Christ, we remember Jesus' death and resurrection. We're being reminded of his love for us, being reminded that he is coming back for us, that he's making all things new. And the Holy Spirit, he does something to us, individually and as a church, when we take communion together. He's strengthening us. He's encouraging us through faith. This is an essential part of our worship. And I hope it's something that we, we take serious as we, as we do it each week. Well, this meal is open to everyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ. If you're visiting with us and you're not a Christian, uh, thank you for being here. But I want to ask, please um, hold back from taking part in this aspect of our service. Well, communion is going to be served at two stations here at the front. Uh, and as you feel led, you can come forward and receive the bread and the juice and then make your way back to your seat. And Dale is going to lead us in taking the elements together. Well, let's pray and then we'll continue in worship. Father Augustine is so right when he says our hearts are restless, Lord, until they find their rest in you. Our longings, our loves go unsatisfied until they find their source in you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you this day would draw our hearts to you. We don't want to love the world and what it offers. We know the world is passing away. We know that... Um, the, the desires of the world are passing away. 
And we love you, Jesus. We love you. That we need your help to keep our love directed towards you. So I pray you do that. Do that, Jesus. Do it for your glory and for our joy. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.